Hello, and welcome to Convergent Dialogues. This is Xavier Bernia. I am very excited to bring you the conversation I had with the wonderful, the brilliant Andy Clark. Uh, Andy is the professor of cognitive philosophy at the University of Sussex. Many interest areas, which include artificial intelligence, embodied and extended cognition, robotics, computational neuroscience, uh, among many others. He's been around for for a while, and he's he's put out some some great books. He's written a, a handful of books, uh, and he's got a new one out, which is just fantastic. I absolutely enjoyed reading this book. Um, I really couldn't put it down. Uh, the book is uh, called The Experience Machine, How Our Minds Predict and Shape Reality. Uh, so get out there and go buy it everywhere. In this conversation, we talk about this book. And I got to say, you know, he's you know, a philosopher, neuroscientist, but it, it just felt really conversational. He was, he was so lovely. He was really, really nice. I had been wanting to talk to him for quite some time. And uh, I'm really proud of the conversation. I feel we we had a conversation, but it was rich and it had a lot of depth. And again, he was just super lovely, and, and I feel quite fortunate to have uh, had this uh, conversation with him. We start by talking about uh, predictive processing model of the brain, what that is, how it functions, how it works. We talk about the Bayesian brain and Bayesian priors. We talk about the role of human growth and development for the brain. Uh, we kind of ask, you know, so what is reality really? Um, and that's that's obviously a, an ongoing question and a tougher question than, than may seem obvious. Uh, we talk about some of the work uh, that uh, Carl Friston has done. You know, Carl Friston's been on the podcast and uh, his uh, free energy principle. Uh, we talk about perceptions and controlled hallucinations, prediction errors in perception, computational psychiatry. We talk about reward and salience in prediction error. We talk about uh, ideomotor and proprioception with predictive processing. Uh, some of his views a little bit of with uh, Rue Ponty. Uh, of course, I, I, I recently uh, had on uh, Ines uh, Hippolito, who, you know, she she's also in this space. She's brilliant in her own right. And uh, we talk about Merlou Ponty's work as well. She's obviously a big fan. I'm a big fan. So check that conversation out as well. Um, and we also talk about, uh, in this conversation, the body budgeting, to taking some of the, the work. Uh, he mentions it in the book. And, and then we hear in the conversation from uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett. She, she talks about this in her work. We talk about sentience and consciousness, the extended mind, and uh, many other uh, topics. Um, again, I, 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 I was so happy with this conversation. I felt greatly enriched by it and from such a kind and wonderful person like Andy. Um, so make sure you, you get out there and buy his book. You can listen to this conversation and all other conversations on my free Substack, conversiondialogues.substack.com. Uh, subscribe, share widely. Um, I'm also on YouTube, Converging Dialogues. Subscribe, share widely. It's much appreciated. And uh, now I bring you Andy Clark. I am here with Andy Clark. Uh, Andy, thanks so much for uh, coming on the podcast. I'm uh, I'm honored and uh, really excited to, to talk with you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course, of course. You've uh, you've written a new book, The Experience Machine: How Our Minds Predict and Shape Reality, which is fantastic. Um, before we get into that. 
wanted to just tell listeners uh, that don't know you uh, who you are, uh, what your background's in, education, experience, and what you're currently working on and, and thinking about. Yeah, so um, basically I'm a, I'm a philosopher by training. Um, my background is in, obviously, in philosophy, but then also my first job was in a cognitive science outfit, so I had to learn artificial intelligence, so programming in good old-fashioned languages like Lisp. Um, I became interested along the way. I've always been interested in the mind and how it works. That's the kind of, that's the golden thread. AI just seemed like a, a way of asking questions about minds. Um, so does neuroscience, so does psychology. I became very interested in early artificial neural networks, then in work in robotics and embodied cognition. I've got this kind of sideline on the extended mind, which is this kind of crazy idea that mind's not all in the head. Mm -hmm. And um, lately I'm mostly working on predictive processing, which is what the new book is about. And uh, I know we'll be talking about that in a minute. Um, basically... Um, Predictive processing brings a lot of the things together that I'd worked on before. Mm. So it seems to me to be a way of having very many cakes and eating them. Whether <laughs> this is actually true or not remains to be seen. <laughs> well, that's that's great. Um, so I know you've written a, quite a quite a lot. You've got a lot of public uh, papers published. Is this uh, what book is this for you? Eighth, ninth? Where, where, where are you at now? <laughs> Someone asked me that um, the other day, and you know I didn't know the answer, and I still don't. <laughs> so I'm going to take a stab at it as uh, maybe the sixth. Properly. Okay. Okay. Um, you know, there might be like a, a textbook and an edited volume or two. But, yeah. 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 So I know you've you've, you've uh, had a, a few of these a uh, few books out. Uh, this one was great. I I, I really really enjoyed it. I, I probably read it uh, maybe in one sitting. I just kind of took an afternoon and just kind of you know inhaled it. Uh, it was it was really really good. Um, so I want to <clears throat> the main I guess thesis of the book is. Is this idea, or is kind of you were just mentioning about predictive processing? So, why don't you just kind of give you a lot of runway here? What's this okay. kind of theory of predictive processing, and how does it explain reality uh, from from our our own predictions? Yeah, okay. You would need an awful lot of runway to get all the way to reality there. Um, <laughs> let's maybe just talk a bit about what predictive processing is and why it's interesting. At least, um, I think that the, the the place to start really is with a, a sort of traditional picture of perception as something that is kind of driven from the outside in. It's kind of like Descartes thought this. The world kind of comes at you and it impresses itself upon your senses and you slowly kind of process the information more and more. At least that was the kind of tweak on that picture that people like David Marr gave us in the, um, in the 20th century. So um, what predictive processing does in effect is it flips that picture upside down. So instead of perception being something which is mostly driven from the outside, it actually becomes something that is mostly driven from the inside. So the idea is that we are trying, the brain is trying, moment by moment to predict the incoming sensory signal across you know, all the modalities, um, sound, touch, hearing, sight, etc. And the thought is, or the idea is, that it's that prediction which is kind of carrying, doing almost, I, I want to say most of the work, doing the heavy lifting in perception, doing the serious and interesting work. And then perception itself becomes something rather different. It becomes dealing with the errors that arise when the brain's tried to predict the incoming sensory signal. So the brain is trying to predict, 
you do have sensory stimulations coming in, you know, we're not just imagining everything, we're genuinely anchored to our world, more or less. Um, and what happens then is that um, where there is mismatch between the prediction and the incoming signal, you get what are called prediction errors. These are the same prediction errors that are familiar probably to some people that work in, um, in sort of um, broadcasting, for example, in communications. Um, linear predictive coding uses these kinds of prediction errors, JPEGs and motion compressed video. These are all cases where you think, look, if I know quite a lot about the signal that I'm expecting, then instead of using an awful lot of bandwidth to kind of drive the system into that position, I can just predict it and use my bandwidth just to deal with the deviations. So, you know, what's different between this frame of the motion picture and the next one, or rather between this one and the one before it? Mm. Um, so that's very efficient, but it's, all, it's more important than that, I think. So in, you know, in telecom, it's just efficiency. Kind of, you know, predictive coding was a story going back to Bell Labs in the 50s. Um, but actually, deep down, I think it's a source of meaning. I think it's because our brains are prediction engines bringing this kind of understanding, this model to bear and using that to predict the sensory signal that things get to make sense at all. So actually, I think this is part of the answer to what's probably the deepest question in philosophy, which is, and, and indeed in, um, in the sciences of mind, which is where does meaning come from? How is it possible? Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot more to say about how all that works. The, the cool thing about predictive processing is it's not just the kind of, it's not just the idea that maybe it works from the inside out. It's a computational model of how that might work. And it's a model that has um, an implementation, a plausible implementation in stuff that the brain does. So it's kind of, um, it's hitting on all these different bases at once. There's a big picture. There's a kind of way that it could be done. And there's probably a way that the brain gets to do it. Um, but that's the general idea, is that you flip that old story on its head and now perception becomes so active. It's all about, it's all about what you expect. And even, even the prediction errors, which are the closest thing to sensory information that we have, they're still kind of framed by your expectations because they're the difference between those expectations and what's coming in. Mm -hmm. So they are sensory information, but it's kind of you-centric. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess the uh, handful of follow-ups here. So yeah. one one piece of this is obviously there's we're having a series of inputs from the environment or the world that we're living in or that we're maneuvering through. And then you know we're we're getting that information um yeah. and then we're uh you know synthesizing it or registering it and then there's a certain level of outputs. How much of this, this is more of the phenomenological question, because much of this sounds like sort of zeros and ones. I, I know it's much more complicated than that, but it, in, in some sense, we're getting inputs from the environment. When we're going to do outputs, obviously the role of at least the five major senses and, and all the other, if you will, ancillary senses as well are important, but is that determinant on that so that inputs that we receive and outputs that we put out you need the senses uh, or the sensorium aspect of the human experience to be uh, predictive of that or asked another way could you be able to have this type of predictive processing um, it, 
in accordance with senses, but also outside of the senses as well? Where, or is this just kind of the unknown? And this is why I say the phenomenological piece. We know things through our senses, mm-hmm. but could you say that there are things that are occurring or are happening outside of the senses, the things that we aren't necessarily so consciously aware of, um, whether they're you want to call them unconscious or phenomenological, how do how do those types of processes fit into the predictive model here? Yeah, I mean, it's it was a sort of um, it was perhaps just a, a kind of a practicality of the quick gloss that I gave you at the start there that I made it seem as if it was all about perception and mm-hmm. just sort of basic sensory perception. Mm-hmm. But of course, really, the idea is that. Um, in order to predict what the senses are bringing in, you need a model that has all kinds of things in it. So, mm. you know, cats and dogs and Coke cans and opportunities, mm. um, you know, the opportunity to uh, pursue one of my goals or to sit in a, a chair. So all of these things kind of figure in the stream of prediction. They're kind of high-level predictions mm. that in themselves spawn a bunch of lower-level ones all the way down to actual expectations at what's more or less pixel level. Mm, so mm. the idea might be, you know, I'm walking into my office, I expect a cup of coffee and a desk, something mm-hmm. like that. Those are very high-level expectations, but they spawn lower-level ones about the shape of my coffee cup, about ultimately the, the play of light and dark, given the way that I see light coming through the window as I walk in. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So... I mean, you asked also about unconscious stuff. I would think that most of these predictions are unconscious. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we certainly we don't walk around thinking about what we're predicting. That would be such a terrible um, sure. <laughs> active <laughs> move yeah. to make. So, you know, what the predictions are trying to do is let us have an experience of the world. So mm. the predictions are just guesses at what, at what the most likely state of the world is that might be responsible for the sort of energetic stimuli that are hitting my body. Mm. And there's that sort of sense there of the brain as kind of almost a sort of locked in place. There it is kind of in the dark almost. And all it's got are these sort of patterns of responses to energies. Mm. How do you get at the world from patterns of responses to energies? Um, Well, one thing that you can do is keep trying to guess what might be out there causing Mm. those patterns and every time your guest mismatches the pattern, try and refine it a little bit. Mm. And rather surprisingly, it was, you know, proved a way back by um, Brown Ballard back in, I, I think this is now the sort of early 90s, that even starting from random assignments, so in other words, your predictions are based on a model which is totally crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can start from these random assignments, you can gradually improve them. Um, by um, by updating slightly every time a mistake is made, and you can you can learn the model that then enables you to predict. Um, and as I say, that model will have all kinds of stuff in it that isn't obviously just sensory. It's mm. just whatever the best way of explaining the sensory stimulations is. Mm. But I don't know if there was something else you, you were talking about phenomenology. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a whole you know there's a whole sub question here about. <laughs> <laughs> what sort of you know uh, David Chalmers style consciousness mm-hmm. is and where it comes from and how it fits into this picture or doesn't? Mm-hmm. We can um, obviously go I'll, to that. Later. I'll save the phenomenological piece. Uh, I think it will pop up later. But I what what you said how you how you uh, built off of that in your your response there was was uh, was was helpful. That makes more sense. I 
I guess where does you know people talk about this a lot? These types of Bayesian priors that people have, where, where do they come into play? I, I guess in, in much of the ways of your explaining the predictive processing, obviously it's a complex kind of almost network of things that we're doing. This might be a chicken or the egg kind of question, right? But you know, which is coming first? Do we have predictions, and then we're trying to slowly, you know, chip away at it to say it is or isn't that way, or are we getting novel information? And then already from what we already have, I guess, how do we, where's the kind of start point or the origin or genesis? And what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. Um, it also points us towards what I think is one of the most elegant bits of the whole story. So, so okay, what are Bayesian priors in this? They're just, um, they're just knowledge, really. The priors are just what the system knows about the the shape of the, world that is likely to be causing the inputs um, so it's just just knowledge um, but then the question was sort of where does that knowledge come from because if you need knowledge to do the predictions and it's the predictions that give you experience then how can you have experience in the first place because you know it seems like unless you already knew about the world you wouldn't be able to make the predictions but actually that brings us back to for example that round ballard paper and these sort of demonstrations of essentially learning from scratch. Um, so this, does, this predictive processing doesn't say you learn from scratch, and I don't for a minute think that we do. You know, we've got a long evolutionary history. It's, we, we start off with some kinds of expectations about the world, even some that are sort of built into the kind of body we have. You might think that in some very broad sense, just having lungs means that I expect to be able to breathe air, you know, mm. from the get-go. Mm. I'm sort of striving to do that thing. And actually, under the sort of mathematical formalism here, that can be treated as a prediction too. So mm. there's a sort of, you know, there's a sort of set of things here, some of which I think look more like real predictions than others. The mm. real predictions mm. are the things that are made by a model rather than like, I don't know, whatever prediction about the shapes of fruit having five fingers amounts to. <laughs> but, um, but still, the, the important point here is that the attempt to make predictions gets you the training that you need to get a model that enables you to make predictions. So I think, um, think about learning a language. Um, if you want to learn a language, it would be really, really good to know the grammar of the language. Mm -hmm. um, but actually, a good way to learn grammar is just to be exposed to the language and spend your time trying to predict how that sound stream is going to vary. So in effect, you're sort of trying to, you know, given someone saying one word, you're kind of trying to predict what the next word is that they're going to say or some little sound fragment. You're trying to predict what the next sound fragment is. Mm -hmm. And by trying to do that and making corrections as you fail, you can slowly build up a model. So a good way to learn, a, you know, a good way to predict the next word in a sentence is to know stuff about grammar. But a good way to learn stuff about grammar is to try again and again to predict the next word in a sentence. Yeah. And so in that way, you kind of bootstrap the predictive model out of the attempt to predict. And that's actually, I think, it's really, really elegant. So the, the sort of the online construction of our reality is of a piece here with the way that we do learning. Um, and it's also of a piece with the way that we drive action. So there is something, there's something very, very elegant about this story. It's basically, it's one, it's one set of moves that deal with perception, learning, action, and higher-level cognition. 
how how much of this uh, piece that you're describing here is uh, instantiated within development? Um, so as obviously we're developing physically, cognitively, intellectually, uh, and 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 even you know personality wise, um, how much of this is kind of a you're talking about that kind of with semantic bootstrapping is what you, you're referencing. Uh, how how much of the the elements of just what we would say, you know, development for humans uh, is implicated here uh, and, and kind of secondary to that. What happens when there's a major injury, such as a massive trauma um, or, you know, something like a, a brain injury or things like that? You know, obviously that's a different kind of um, uh, a path there in terms of disorders. But I guess in a, in a general sense, how much does our development kind of build and build and build and build and build as we grow? uh, in a kind of, um, you know, uh, in the aggregate, uh, and then what happens when there's certain injuries, I guess, how does that kind of, does the brain compensate or how does it, how does it still function there? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, development is actually, I think, an under theorized bit of the picture here. So, um, there's a sense in which most of the actual simulations, in fact, all of the ones that I know about there, uh, basically take, a sort of adult of some kind mm. and you know that adult creature or adult simulated creature gets to um, learn about its world and then do sensible things on the basis of a predictive model mm -hmm. um, it's obvious that one of the powerful things about um, biological systems is that as i think um Elman. Elman said many years ago, they kind of start small and they get bigger. Mm. And that starting small hypothesis, it's actually quite interesting that the, there might be something about, for example, slowly opening or, or increasing the, the power of your working memory. So just suppose that in, in sort of early part of development, your working memory window was smaller. Mm -hmm. um, one good thing about that is you wouldn't try to learn very, very complex regularities in the world. You'd kind yep. of be forced to learn the simpler ones. Mm -hmm. But those simpler ones are the building blocks that you need to get in place first before you learn the more complex ones. So actually having a developmental system that is shifting like that is probably a rather powerful kind of tool for learning about a very complex world. And I think it's something that predictive processing needs to explore more thoroughly. It's, you know, There's nothing there that is inconsistent with the predictive processing picture mm. but this is a picture now in which the sort of the prediction i don't know the sort of the basic set of possibilities of prediction actually change a bit over time as a result of sheer physical development mm. and i think that's a very interesting space that we haven't properly explored yet mm. yeah oh, no, and no. you were asking what happens if there's damage well you know if you had a model of that then, of course, you'd have a model of what's likely to happen during damage. But I think mm -hmm. there is, in some sense, there's one thing that predictive processing says here that might be relevant, which is that we're very much driven by our endpoints. Mm -hmm. So you kind of predict an endpoint, like, um, you know, if I, if I want to get the Coke can, I predict my hand is reaching the Coke can. And yeah. we can talk a bit later about how that might actually work as a way mm -hmm. of driving action. But the good thing about being endpoint driven in that way is if something goes wrong, if I don't know, if I've got a splint on my hand today or, um, or you just suddenly come and you push my hand while I'm trying to do it, um, because I'm being pulled along by the endpoint, by the predicted endpoint, 
the system will automatically try and compensate for that. Uh, and actually in what's often a very systematic sort of way. And so I think that that's a, that is one place where the, the kind of idea motor story about action fits very nicely with some of the interesting things we know about development and injury, which is that uh, if you take an animal and you do something to one of its legs, it immediately seems to know what yeah. to do in order to walk. It's really yeah. quite a stunning achievement when you think about it. Uh, I mean, absolutely. I mean, you can look at the natural world and, and see all this, and then obviously the, the power of, of humans as well within that. And I think, I should just say, I think mm -hmm. something like that happens, um, kind of just an internal cognition as well, if you like. So not just mm -hmm. walking, but, you know, if, you're, if your brain basically expects another bit of the brain to be able to do something and it can't, it finds a workaround by being driven by the endpoint, at least as far as it can. Yeah, uh, yeah. Of course, there are limits, but I think we are remarkably resilient creatures and um, nothing we've built yet has anything like our resilience yeah, yeah no I, I fully agree with you there um let, let me let me ask this it's a huge question i'm just curious about you, you can you can you know kick it down the road if you want but there's this aspect of reality <laughs> and what is reality and so i know folks have, have talked about this i know david chalmers has, has talked about this more recently as well and um you know, how do you usually frame it in terms of what is? Because if if so much of, you know, in terms of predictive processing, there's a there's a, a heavy value on perception, and I think perception is tremendous. I think it's 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 something that is super powerful. Um, you know, how do we understand reality? I mean, many people will make this claim. It's like, well, sure, perceptions are important, or points of view, et cetera, but. You know, but there's like the real reality, and then there's just our perception of it. And I, I think that that's, um, I think it's disarming for people to see reality not that way. <laughs> you know, is it is it too subjective or is it too reliant on our perception? So how do you understand, I guess, just a, a basic or broad definition of, of what is real or what is our, our reality? I struggle with that a little bit in the book, actually, here and there, yeah. that sort of, um, you know, so... Uh, if you, if you kind of say that the point of these systems is to bring sensory information and prediction together in the right way, the way that reveals things as they are, um, it turns out that there's no one way of revealing things as they are. Um, it depends what you're trying to do. It depends what kind of animal you are. It also depends to some extent on what kind of history you've had. Um, so I think all I can really say about reality reality is it's a source of the energies that the, that the embodied prediction machine is mm. dealing with. Mm. Um, it sounds a bit Kantian almost. You know, there's that sort of sense <laughs> yeah. that yeah. it's not obvious to me that we get at the source of those energies apart from, well, you know, we, we come up with the kind of model which best accounts given the needs that we have as the kind of embodied creature we are for the flow of sensory information mm. and that best serves our, our kind of goals. Um, along the way, somehow, we've managed to create science. Mm. And, um, you know, science has its own ideas. You know, physics has its own ideas about what yeah. real reality or however many times we want to iterate, the, uh, the, iterate that uh, is, yeah. is like. Um, and it doesn't seem to be like anything that any of us ever um, think about. Yeah. So, 
it's it I, is a, it's a tough question. It's a really I think tough all question. All I can say is reality is some is some kind of constraint on successful prediction for an embodied agent. Because if you get it too badly wrong, mm. you just die. Mm. But there must be so many ways of getting things right mm. that the idea that the reality that we experience through our senses has some kind of privileged status can't be. That just can't be right. You know, we are just. Um, we're trying to get by, and prediction is a wonderful tool for trying for getting by because it, you know, as it sounds, it's trying to keep you just about one or two or three steps ahead of the game. You're mm -hmm. sort of, um, you know, you don't wait until your bodily resources run out um, before you start looking for new ones. Instead, you you predict they're running out. Your brain predicts it. You start to feel hungry before you need to eat, and this is, you know, the, these are all good ways of staying alive. Um, beyond staying alive, it's really hard to know what we should say about reality. I think there's a sort of there's something like a common human reality. I think that is that is kind of we share a lot of evolutionary history with our conspecifics. We share quite a lot of sensory capacities. Most of us share most of our sensory capacities with other other agents like us. Um, and so I think there's a sort of you know there are there are pressures there to sort of bring our pictures of reality into line. There's mm. also language itself, which I think is doing some of that work. You know, I'm, yeah. if I try and talk to you about my experiences and how I see things and how I feel, there's a kind of pressure there to come mm. up with a story that we can both accept. Yeah. And human reality is pretty much that, uh, you know, the story that we've all come to accept. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I think it's a good answer because I think it's a it's a... It's a it's a realistic one. I mean, it's it's a hard it's a hard question. It's something I've thought about off and on throughout my life, and I I still I'm kind of in the same space. I I don't really have an answer. It's it's a strange, it's a strange thing when you sit to think about it. You know, kind of abstractly or even more concretely. Um, before we I mean, get into concrete realities, you know, yeah. if I think about reality, I'm not normally thinking about quantum physics. You know, I'm yeah. just thinking yeah. about the stuff that I can reach out and grab and deal with. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a sense there in which I, I think it, you could reasonably say that there's a form of reality wherever perception and action come together to enable mm -hmm. you to do stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think that would fit with Dave Chalmers' sort of picture in Reality Plus that, you know, yeah. um, virtual realities are as real as other realities. Mm -hmm. They're places where perception and action come together to let you do stuff. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah. It was it was a very, that book was very fascinating. I really, it felt very... Um, uh, current uh, yeah. for many of the things we're dealing with, you know, and many of these conversations can sometimes feel a little dated or things like that. But his his felt that that Reality Plus was a was a great book. He, he, he put a lot of in interesting ideas forward. Um, one one thing before I want to ask you about these uh, these <laughs> controlled hallucinations. Very fascinating right. when you brought it up in the book. Uh, before that, though, just as a maybe sort of a kind of a long doesn't have to be long, but sort of a footnote of sorts is. <clears throat> Reading your book uh, and and some of the the stuff you've written, um, I was trying to figure out or understand one one part of my brain was was trying to to figure out um, how how much of your work is is similar or different to to Carl Friston um, and his you know uh, obviously free energy principle. Uh, he has uh, his critics of, of course, and uh, but many people that uh, kind of get it. I mean, it's very it's very very elaborate. It's a, <laughs> very elaborate. Um, 
really, really enjoy it. And um, he, for, for listeners, uh, I, I was fortunate to talk to Carl for over three hours uh, on the podcast. I think it's uh, episode 120 something, 121 maybe. Uh, so folks can listen to that. But um, yeah, how, how much of your your um, your work is, is similar or dissimilar? Again, not to put you in a camp or anything, but just how do you see there's any overlap or or things where you kind of just diverge a little bit? Or Because I see there is, to me, there's the predictive processing work seems similar, but how do, how do you see it? Yeah, I mean, well, Carl is one of the architects of the computational and neuroscientific accounts of predictive processing. So, you know, his work is absolutely crucial to the whole field. It's if you had to pick one person that was uh, actually uh, responsible for a lot of this, it would be it would be Carl. Mm. Um, he's also like about a million times cleverer than me. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> it's genuinely true. You know, I'm quite good at reaching out to multiple audiences and bringing things together. Um, but um, but Carl Friston's sort of approach is very, very deep and profound and moving from first principles. So I think the biggest difference is exactly there, that Carl starts from first principles that are more or less a tautology. So it's, you yeah. know, basically, um, yeah, basically you have to, you know, if you're here at all, you have to be avoiding surprises in your encounters with the world because the things that didn't avoid the surprises aren't here. Um, so from there, he slowly builds up the whole of the active inference predictive processing story. Mm-hmm. I take what Carl calls the low road. So that's the high road. The high road is kind of starting from first principles and deriving everything from there. I've never been able to get my head properly around the high road. It's yeah. probably just too much math there for me. Um, so I'm a low road kind of person. And the low road is the one that starts with... Um, computational models and neuroscience and is sort of like okay here's a way that you might get certain things done um let's just start to ask whether it's the way that animals do it whether it's the way that humans do it um and in that sense it's sort of um it's not really taken it's not attempting to be a theory of quite everything Mm -hmm. it's a sort of maybe it's a theory of most things cognitive Maybe mm. all things cognitive, mm. mm-hmm. but you know, I think that the free energy principle has even it has, it has a wider remit than that. It's literally become a theory of all things, yeah. um, and I think it's fascinating. And you know, what's wonderful about Carl's work is that he's got that huge sort of abstract first principle starting point, right. but he plays it out in like a million different projects. Yes. that get to grips with every kind of little practicality and cognitive ability and um, cognitive deficit and cognitive difference that you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, somehow he's taking the high road and the low road and all the roads in between, and <laughs> I'm just on the low road. <laughs> well, well, I mean, you're, you, <laughs> you don't sell yourself short. I mean, your, your work is obviously uh, tremendous as well. Um, I, I, I had a feeling it was... It was. It didn't seem like there was any conflict with what you're saying, with what he's saying. It, it seemed more that there was a lot of kind of overlapping and swerving in and out from what he's doing and, and vice versa, what he's doing with what you're doing. And so it seemed to have like a very nice, healthy complement. Yes, I can't think of any point of conflict um, yeah. at all, really. I mean, it's um, occasionally there's been a little conflict over the notion of representation, where I think I'm a, I'm a bit more of an old-fashioned representationalist, so I think that brains actually harbor predictive models, 
so that you can say that um, some of what they do actually involves generating a prediction in a sort of um, in a rather brutal sense mm. as opposed to the idea that um, it just is the model so it's not wow. like uh, it's not like using a model to predict it's just when everything's going on and self-organizing in the right way that is the model mm. and that feels like you know it, it might just be a difference in the in the sort of vocabularies that we're most comfortable with using might reflect something about Carl's roots in dynamical systems theory and mm -hmm. mine in kind of more classical approaches. Mm. But um, at any rate, that's that's as close to difference as we've ever come across. But it it's never come to anything because the the thought that builds on that is that nonetheless, in the case of animals like us that are often busy. Um, if you like, there's temporal depth in the models that we bring to bear on the world, quite a lot of it. So we're looking ahead at counterfactual futures and we're pushing ourselves via simulations into the future. Mm. Um, at that point, I think we don't disagree. There's something going on there that looks very much like um, representing how things are going to be if you do such and such. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> so, so, so tell me about... So you talk about in the book about... Uh, Perception, of course, and perception is is tremendously fascinating for me. And you say that ordinary perception is a type of controlled hallucination. Um, yes. So my 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 clinical work comes into play here when I was reading that, and I said, well, you know, I've I've worked with patients that have psychosis, and I know about hallucinations and delusions, and it's not quite that obviously, but um, how, how tell us about perception as controlled hallucination. Um, what what are some of these the, these aspects? Uh, you know, maybe like a positive kind of hallucination, if you want to give a valence of sorts. You to talk about this a little yeah. bit. Yeah, I mean, this is a it's a I don't know quite what the right phrase for it is a motto. It's a it's a slogan that has come up a few times in this area. Perception as controlled hallucination. I I'm not quite sure where it comes from. It certainly wasn't me. Anil Seth uses it, but it wasn't him. Mm. I think it might be Ramesh Jain. Um, it might also be the old machine learning theorist Max Klaus. It comes from somewhere, yeah. but no one's quite sure where. Yeah. Um, the The idea, you know, I think, is just that if you think of the brain as a kind of constant guessing machine, busy trying to guess, guess, guess what's out there, then under good conditions, that guess gets corrected by incoming sensory feedback so you're getting sort of you're getting sensory information in and where there's a mismatch you get prediction errors and the prediction errors try to grab a better guess from the stuff that you know um, so that's the sense of control here is that sort of trying to guess the world and having your guesses corrected by the sensory information um, now deep down i don't actually want to say that perception is controlled hallucination, even though I just let it go in, in the book. Um, because as a philosopher, I actually think it kind of gets the cart before the horse. And that what we should really be saying um, is that hallucination is uncontrolled perception. So I think we should flip those around so that, as it were, um, perception is our way of being in contact with the world. Something has gone wrong in the case of hallucination. The perception has become uncontrolled. And you can mm. see how that will work. If you take away the, the sensory grounding, then the inner model just gets to um, spin its wheels fairly freely. Look at what happens in a sensory deprivation chamber, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and in the case of psychosis and so on, there'll be 
stuff I'm sure we'll talk about later today, where the way that sensory information and your predictions are balanced by another factor called mm-hmm. the precision weighting of the prediction goes wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I think, that's the root of just about, well, in fact, the kind of at least the canonical picture here is that's the root of all psychiatric problems. Every psychiatric um, problem and every difference is a difference in this balancing act between sensory information and prediction. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if your predictions do all the work, sensory information does no work, then you're either hallucinating or imagining. If you just manage to control stuff without the sensory information, but you're still kind of busy, you're still pursuing your goals, um, then I think that is actually just imagination. So mm. there's a sort of, there's a, the picture that you get out of predictive processing of perception, imagination, and hallucination is all very much on a kind of continuum. Mm. It's all, these are all just differences in the way that sensory information and goals are managing to control um, to control the way that uh, the guesses that your brain is making about how things are. Mm. Is it is it is it in terms of flipping it where you have a type yeah. of uh, you said an uncontrolled perception, if you will, um, or you know, or a controlled perception, but in an uncontrolled perception, that the switching that around as opposed to a uncontrolled or yeah. controlled hallucination, that is that there's the point of emphasis. The emphasis is more on the perception, not on the hallucination, right? And, that, and that's why it's more of a, this is a move for the philosophers, really, because, um, <laughs> sure. you know, they have a great investment, some of them in, as it were, um, veridical perception being the basic case and everything else being a kind of derivative case. And mm-hmm. I think if you think of perception as controlled hallucination, it can sound, at least to those philosophers, as if you're somehow doing damage to that they mm. think metaphysically really important um, starting point. Mm. But if you just flip it around and say hallucination is um, is uncontrolled perception, then they get what they want. And I think that for the purposes of predictive processing, we're still saying the same thing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in <laughs> yeah. the, yeah, yeah. There, there are places where I, I bother to make that argument, but it's not very important really. The, you mm. know, the general idea is just that the brain is a guessing machine. It's busy, busy guessing, guessing, guessing. The sensory information is trying, if you like, to 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 to, to rein that guessing in, mm. in a way that lets us um, achieve the things that we want to achieve. And when that reining in goes wrong, then we are hallucinating, and the stuff that we're expecting is doing too much work. Mm. And actually, if you try and rein things in too hard, and you up the volume on the sensory information too far, then actually you're still unable to deal with the world because now. You can't spot faint patterns because to spot faint patterns, you need to bring your model to bear on what's normally a rather unreliable and noisy signal. So, you know, if you've got a noisy signal or an unreliable one, the last thing you want to do is really turn the volume up on it. Right. Right. Um, so, you know, I think, again, it's all in the balancing act here between prediction and sensory, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. energies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you mentioned in the, in the appendix, right in the in the in the back of the in the back of the book, you, you mentioned these uh, these four elements of how the predictive brain works. And maybe this is a good time to kind of chat about that. You, you talk about the generative model, the predictions, prediction errors, and precisions. Uh, kind of give us what these four are and how these are kind of the nuts and bolts of the predictive yeah. brain. 
Yes, so I think they are the nuts and bolts. I think of those nuts and bolts, the most important one is the generative model. So, you know, the, the, the generative model is the, the structured knowledge store that the system has that enables it to make moment-by-moment -moment predictions. Um, and, of course, this is very much the same kind of generative model as we're seeing in generative AI work at the moment. Um, you know, this it's not a... I mean, it's, there are differences, but they're both generative models. Um, if you had, a, for example, a generative model for images, then you would be able to create novel images that belong to a certain category, ones that you'd never seen before. And so we've seen this in the sort of work that uh, some of the kind of deep learning work on um, generating fake celebrity images and so on. Yeah. So you can only do that if you've got a generative model of celebrity faces. Yeah. If you've got one, then you can, you can generate a novel instance. So that's a bedrock thing, it's a generative model. Um, and as we mentioned earlier, it's good that you can acquire that generative model just by trying to predict the next sensory stuff that is hitting you. So the generative model isn't sort of flowing in from nowhere. Yeah. Instead, it's the result of earlier attempts at prediction and wherever you started. So, you know, evolution gave us something, so we started somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's the generative model, and that's the core, I think. Um, the generative model issues predictions, and so that's pretty much what it sounds like. It's uh, It's trying to predict what the current stream of sensory information is most likely to be like, given what you know about what you're doing, where you are, all that sort of stuff. Um, and when that prediction hits the incoming sensory information, so by then it's been unpacked all the way down to how should these energies be right now? Um, if there are major differences, then that generates prediction errors, and the prediction errors are, if you like, um, well, they're sent... They're sent deeper and deeper into the system until they can retrieve a better prediction, a prediction which will quash them. So they kind of the prediction errors are, are seeking to um, abolish themselves, if you like. So that's the idea: is that um, prediction errors then code for whatever sensory information wasn't explained by the current prediction. Mm. So it's in that sense that they are sensory information, but they're the unexplained current sensory information. Hmm. Um, so now, what do we have there? We've had generative model, prediction, prediction error. The remaining thing is precision. Yeah. Um, so precision is the hardest maybe to talk about here in some way, but also after the generative model, probably the most important. Hmm. Um, so precision here is it's a weighting on the sensory evidence versus the prediction. So it's just this sort of balancing act, but it's not a balancing act that is done just once. Instead, the idea is that the brain is a multi-level system where a high-level prediction generates a lower-level one, generates a lower-level one, all the way down to incoming sensory stuff. And every level there is trying to balance what it's sort of seeing as if it were sensory information, the prediction error, with its own prediction. So this balancing act is sort of it's repeated again and again and again mm -hmm. throughout the brain. But the, the easiest way to think about it, I think, is, is, is just as sort of trying to turn up the volume on whatever is most reliable and salient for what you're trying to do.
So, you know, on a foggy day, you probably don't want to turn up the weighting on visual sensory information too high. You want to be driven maybe a bit more by what you know about the landscape. Maybe you know there's probably a cliff edge over there. The fact that um, that's not present in the visual information, that you shouldn't allow that to, to drive too strongly. Mm. Um, on a clearer day, or if you're examining a, a coin under a very good light looking to see if it's a fake, you want to try and let the sensory information speak for itself as much as you can. So you want to turn up the volume on that, mm. um, but nonetheless uh, interrogate the coin in the way that is most likely to um, reveal whether it's um, genuine or fake. So precision is this sort of, I think of it as a kind of uh, a kind of neural head torch. You know, I was, mm. I was absolutely struck the first time I put on a head torch by the way that uh, it just seemed to illuminate just what I wanted to see, just when I wanted to see it. It was mm. really like magic, obviously. Mm. You know, I was doing it all, but yeah. it's so different to the experience of moving a torch around. Mm. Um, and I feel like in, in, in human cognition, precision is that kind of almost magical thing. Mm. It's what allows you to up the value of the stuff, which is most likely to help you out right now. Now imagine if that goes wrong and then suddenly you're in this um, ballpark of you don't know what to take seriously. It's like you're getting a lot of fake news all the time, but you have no way of telling whether it's fake or not. It yeah. just messes with the whole sort of cognitive ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So, um, the, oh, and just to put the little neuro touch in there, the, the kind of thought is that um, this whole economy of precision weightings is mostly implemented by all the neurotransmitters. Mm. Um, so different neurotransmitters doing different things, but all in this kind of business of trying to balance predictions and sensory information. Um, it might be that time-locked neuronal oscillations are also doing some of that work. On on precision, then you mentioned how it's, yeah. it's 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 important for the generative model, but also how it's a little bit difficult. Is yeah. it more of like a filtering system, or is it more of an interpretive system? Um, in terms of if you're getting things with mixed with your senses and how you're you're in, in, in kind of encoding it in your brain, uh, there's a lot of things that are going on here. It sounds like, yeah. but is it more of a it's you know, the high level, the low level, all of these things. But is it something that is trying to filter through the different levels as a kind of sifting here and here and here? Or is it more of a, well, what is this? And let's see if we can put it here or put it here. And there's more of an interpretive thing our brain is doing. I guess the my main question here is, is what is the kind of, mm, what's the active ingredient, I guess, yeah. for, for precisions, I guess? Yeah, I, I, I mean, filter's not a bad image, but I think gain control is a better image. So okay. it, it, it is sort of, I mean, technically, it's a gain control on prediction error. Mm -hmm. So um, what's going on is as you up precision, you're up in the postsynaptic efficacy of the signal. So okay. you're kind of driving it with more force deeper into the system, if you like. Yeah. Um, but you know, what that, what that really means in the end is that we have a zero-sum game going on here. So if you up the precision on something, that is costing you precision on other things. Yeah. And so it's, it's very much, you know, precision is the way that these systems implement what we intuitively think of as attention. Mm. Yeah. Um, and it actually explains, I think, 
some stuff about attention that's never been properly explained before so people have often had like the spotlight metaphor where it's kind of okay so you've got something in the spotlight other stuff isn't but why exactly should that be the case why not just have one really big spot not put everything in the spotlight um but since this is very much a sort of balancing act and it's a zero-sum game you've got a sort of first principles explanation of why Mm. it's why it behaves the way it does without just having to say oh it's a limited resource or something like that yeah yeah, that makes sense. That I, I like that way of, of explaining it. You you talk about in the book about computational uh, psychiatry, which was interesting, oh, yeah. very very interesting. Um, maybe you can maybe talk about what that is, but how and how the predictive uh, you know uh, processing model fits here. But how how does that give us a more uh, insightful and systematic approach to a, you know to a symptom based approach? You know, and and how do we look at you know how functional disorders you know may or may not operate yeah yeah um so it's something that i'm super interested in right now is the kind of computational psychiatry um applications of predictive processing so i think it's a i think it's a kind of major moment in sort of beginning to erode what what i think is actually a very bad distinction that is written deep into a lot of into a lot of contemporary culture, which is a distinction between neurology and psychiatry, as if um, as if there are sort of two kinds of ways that things can go wrong. One of them psychiatric, and the other neurological. And you know, often you're kind of being sent to different people. I I think in the end we're just going to see that neither of these categories really does justice to the phenomena, and that what we want is a kind of category that brings them together. It doesn't have a name yet, but I think that predictive processing is suggestive of, of how that category might look and operate. Um, in part because it's, um, you know, it gives you this, it gives you this way of being cause-based rather than symptom-based for explaining mm-hmm. the differences between different um Different psychiatric um, conditions and different um, different ways of, of of encountering your world, whether they're psychiatrically um, problematic or not. So, you know, you can think of. I mean, one. It's probably easiest just to look at a few examples very very briefly here. Yeah. Um, so, you mentioned functional disorders. Um, maybe we should just start a little bit further back than that with the idea that when you think about perception as being structured by prediction, perception of our own bodies is structured by prediction in exactly the same way. So my body and the way that my body feels and my pains and my um, tingles, they're all, they're all just percepts that are constructed in exactly the same way as all the other percepts by bringing predictions, most of them unconscious, together with sensory information in a way which is balanced by precision weighting. Um, so, for example, just to take a bodily case, I quite often get phantom phone vibrations where I seem to feel my phone kind of going off in my in my trousers or when, when it isn't. And actually, lately, I get phantom phone vibrations on my wrist because I started wearing a smartwatch too. And, you know, I got used to it giving me these little, little buzzes now and again. And now I've got phantoms there as well. So... Um, what seems to be going on there is that overactive expectations are kind of swamping bits of otherwise innocent sensory information. So there'll be little sort of 
fluctuations in my bodily state, but under the strong expectation that my phone might ring or buzz me, then um, those small fluctuations can be um, treated as good evidence of an incoming call, and so I, I sense the, the buzzing. Um, this is just kind of, this is sort of predictive process in 101. It's just this kind of this, um, if your expectations are strong enough, then actually that's how you're going to experience the world. Mm. Um, there's a case that I rather like of a, just because it's a dramatic way of showing this sort of stuff, of a construction worker in the States who was um, on some scaffolding and they fell off and they fell onto a very large nail. I forget exactly how large, but it was a big nail. It went right through their boot. They appeared to be in agony. They were taken to hospital. They were given fentanyl um, and something else, I think, as well. And slowly they tried to, you know, remove the, the nail. They got the nail out. They took the boot off. And it turned out that the nail had gone right between the toes and hadn't done any physical harm to the person at all. And yet they were in genuine agony. And I think that's because they had this damning visual evidence and that meant that they gave very high precision weight into their expectations of pain, mm -hmm. and that brought the pain about. I mean, and that was genuine pain, excruciating pain, I have no doubt, you know. No one's accusing the construction worker of faking it or anything <laughs> like that. Um, something like this seems to be going on in different degrees in, for example, chronic pain. So, you know, chronic pain is a, a huge medical problem. Um, it's very, very hard to deal with, um, and in fact, many cases of chronic pain, in fact, I guess in nearly all cases of chronic pain, what seems to have gone wrong is something in the kind of pain signaling system rather than, you know, the bodily problem is no longer sufficient to account for the pain, but the pain is just persisting. Again, this is this sort of overweighted expectations of pain can become ingrained in just that kind of way. Mm. So, so in that sense, you know, um, the, the line between, you know, you move very quickly there into stuff that looks m much more like psychiatric sorts of issue. So if you think about that balancing act in other domains, imagine that, imagine that you constantly overweight the incoming sensory evidence. Mm. Now ask yourself what your life might be like. I think if we think hard about that under a predictive processing framework, you can see that that could easily be one aspect of autism spectrum condition, that um, what seems to be happening there, in part at least, is that sensory information is, at least by neurotypical standards, overweighted. So that makes it hard to spot certain kinds of subtle pattern in rather noisy environment. Some very subtle patterns might involve, you know, how other people are feeling right here, right now. But I don't think that there's actually a, a primary issue there. The mm. primary issue, at least from a predictive processing perspective, is enhanced sensory worlds. So there's a lot of illusions that autism spectrum condition folk are not subject to. In mm. those cases, they're seeing the world brighter than we are, if you mm. like, the right mm -hmm. and the neurotypical folk are. Um, and I think this is one of the places where that question, so what's the right balance between sensory information and expectation, just comes home to roost because there's no good answer to mm. it. It's easy mm. to imagine worlds in which having the balance one way is better 
other worlds, having the balance another way is better. If you happen to inhabit a world that has been mostly structured by people who had the balance one way, then you're inhabiting a kind of artificial world where your balance might not be so useful, um, or at least could sometimes be problematic. Uh, so I think there's, you know, that's one side of that. The other side is what happens if you overweight your predictions. Well, if you overweight your predictions, then you're likely to start to hallucinate things just because your brain strongly expects them, like my phantom phone vibrations. Mm -hmm. So there's, a, you know, there are there are systematic attempts to look at all, lots of different um, psychiatric ways of being, like having PTSD, for example, that tries to make sense of them by thinking about these differing checks and balances in a predictive system, all sort of determined by precision weighting. And maybe, if that works out, we'll end up with a kind of taxonomy, if you like, of different, different ways of experiencing our worlds um, where we can slot things in according to, you know, at what level of the predictive hierarchy precision weighting is turned up one way or turned down another way. Um, maybe that, you know, that, that would certainly be a step on the road to actually having the kind of causal picture that might enable one day better interventions. So, you know, um, intervention is obviously the, 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 the grail here in some sense, or at least, uh, yeah. yeah, making think... things better for everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think I think that's that's totally right. I think that having a, a a structure like that is important. About the piece about the the overlap, um, you know, I I agree fully that psychiatry and, and neuroscience um, or neurology or both, you know, have to have this kind of meeting of the minds more, we're less uh, bumping into each other. Um, you know, I I think it's you know I had an old supervisor used to tell me that you know when I when I you know did a neuropsych rotation he said you know we we see schizophrenia as a psychiatric disorder but really it's a neurodegenerative disorder at the very least yeah. and, and in many ways you know, schizophrenia which you know if people have you know you know auditory or visual or tactile hallucinations um there's still a lot of unknowns but there is something that the brain is doing with the amount of internal stimuli they're receiving and I think the only difference that, that is is drawn from that there is how 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 much is it obfuscating the ability for someone to interact in a quote unquote shared reality with other people, yeah. but that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to, I think, entirely offset it. And and I do agree with you that in the future, as we understand more about uh, the brain's predictive processing and what that looks like. We are going to see more, I think, a different taxonomy that moves away from disorder yeah. and more towards, uh, you know, difference in some ways. That's not to say that some people... Differently balanced. Somewhere. Yeah, you know, yeah. After all, if you, you know, if you had the kind of periodic table of, um, mm. of sort of, yeah, the periodic table of experiential differences... Um, as 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 written by predictive processing, it would just be different balances all the mm -hmm. way through, mm -hmm. um, and and you know, as I sort of mentioned earlier, different balances will be really useful in different situations. Um, That's right. Yeah. You know, they 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 did some experiments where non-clinical voice hearers, 
who are basically here just um, people that hear voices an awful lot, but it doesn't cause them any trouble in their daily lives. Um, they were um, put in a kind of experimental situation where hidden voices were being played amongst a sort of a lot of noise in an fMRI kind of tube, I think it was. Mm -hmm. And uh, the non-clinical voice hearers were much more able to successfully pick this up. They noticed that there were genuine voices out there. Mm -hmm. um, of course, you know, the price of their hypersensitivity to voices there is that they're getting a lot of false alarms in the, um, you know, yeah. just like my false phantom phone vibration alarm. Um, but, you know, there would be environments in which that was such a, a positive plus that they would just be, you know, they would just be expert voice hearers. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, and, and, it, and what it's doing is, is that it's looking at the whole menu of human experience and valuing the human and, 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 and people that we normally, you know, at least historically have seen as deranged or insane yeah. or things like yeah. that. And it's a different framework, and we're understanding it on different uh, continuums, which I think, I think is it could important. be really helpful for the other thing you mentioned earlier: functional disorders. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, these are these are, are sort of cases of paralysis um, and pain, and just about anything you can imagine where there doesn't seem to be an effective standard cause. Mm -hmm. um, Sometimes they say there doesn't seem to be an organic cause. I couldn't buy that for a minute. You know, there's some of this. You know. If there are these altered balances in play, that's as organic as anything else. Mm -hmm. um, but it's just, just, um, just not a standard cause. Um, in the case of functional disorders, I think it's going to be really, really helpful as we begin to think the ordinary perception of our standard bodily states, our ordinary medical symptoms, is constructed in just the same way as it's being constructed in the case of these functional, as they used to be known, psychogenic disorders mm -hmm. um you know in each case you've just got some sensory evidence you've got some expectations um mostly unconscious and they come together in a way that generates your experience of your body your medical symptoms your pains yeah. um and one of the things that i've been impressed by lately is 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 some work that shows that even in cases where there is a kind of standard cause of some sort um very much of this, there's a huge variance nonetheless in how people experience that standard cause. Yeah, yeah. And so even those cases, you know, it's, everything we experience seems to be this sort of, it will just be this kind of mixture of mm -hmm. prediction and sensory signal. And neither of those is experiential reality. You know, nociceptive activity is not pain. Mm -hmm. um, well, I think I think I think people realize this. If you take something as you know, I'll say common because people are, are aware of it. Yeah. You know, if you take ten people that are diagnosed, you know, uh, formally clinical diagnosed with major depressive disorder, you're going to have ten different presentations. Yeah. Now, you have a, obviously a, a cluster of symptoms that are enough to meet the basic requirements to determine or to delineate between a clinical versus non-clinical depression, and that's why the DSM is a type of, um, I believe yeah. the term is a polythetic criterion. It's, it's where there's a, a way in which things can fit on a continuum but still receive the same diagnosis as opposed to more just discrete kind of categories. Mm -hmm. And that's pushing more, even psychiatrically and diagnostically, towards something of saying, this is going to look a little different, right? Yeah. And just because you see symptoms doesn't mean that it's necessarily disorder or that it is this disorder. You know, you could take something like inattention, which can be seen in yeah. six different major disorders. 
So I think going pushing towards that uh, mode is is good. And um, another thing that will come out of this, and then I'll stop sort of um, yeah, yeah, yeah. on about this. <laughs> but uh, another thing that I think will come out of this is we'll start to take the environment much more seriously as well, because mm. you know mm. all of these sorts of balances are constructed on the basis of dealing with different environments and mm. changes to the environment are just as as potent and powerful as direct changes to the sort of neurotransmitter system or, or anything yeah. else. I think we'll we'll just we should end up with something that sits between actually between psychiatry, neurology and something like environmental understanding. Mm. No, I think that's a that's a really important point because I think that you know it, it, if you're if you're understanding more of how an organism is in the world, well, then you have to say, well, what kinds of environments should it adjust, and and then and or you know which and even with adjustment, which environments are going to be more or less suited for certain individuals based on a you know whatever yeah. kind of constellation of uh, things that they in may cases have. Cases where by changing the environment you can change the predictions that are structuring the uh -huh. experience. Um, mm -hmm. So you know you can just reach in in so many different ways. You can just mm -hmm. try and change the predictions by just I don't know talking to people and getting yeah. them to try and make different predictions, or change the world that is sort of training them to make those predictions. Mm. Or maybe reach right in and do something sort of, you know, something clunky with um, clunky with pills. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, I want to ask you about I want to ask you about reward. I'm really interested in your thoughts here. So we, we, we many people will be sort of familiar with the reward prediction error. You can talk about that yeah. if you want. But yeah. how I'm curious here. How is the reward prediction error different in salience? Um, so. And I'll give a little bit of a setup with this. So my mind on this is coming from like a kind of addictions kind of world, right? For people that use a substance and they are addicts, yeah. right? Somebody now the casual user of let's say alcohol or maybe if you know if they're using you know other types of substances, they might have some enjoyment from it or they like the high they get from things or whatever. But someone that's a legitimate you know addict, they have a they have a serious challenge with it. It's not enjoyable. Right, it, it's it's yeah. it's not it's it's almost uh, uh, yeah. necessary, especially if you take something yeah. as as, as uh, mainstream as, as alcohol yeah. is. Your body needs it, and so there's this. How how my question here is that the reward prediction error it, is it different than salience in terms of what's there, or or do you see it as as similar? And because the salience piece seems to place almost. Um, uh, uh, kind of um, implicitly a type of moralizing aspect of reward. Um, and, and maybe you think about that differently, but yeah, just talk about that idea between reward prediction error and, and salience. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, so there's there's actually quite a quite a lot to say in this area. Again, um, as much as you want. The, Go ahead. <laughs> the reward prediction. The in a way, okay, maybe the place to start is this. Within a predictive processing framework, there's nothing special about reward. Um, in, a, in a sense, the, what happens is that strong predictions play the role that is often played by reward. And so, you know, we are, if you like, we're set up as young animals to expect, predict unconsciously certain kinds of things, um, like, for example, um, getting enough to eat, um, and then 
by action, we start to make those predictions come true. And then looking in from the outside, someone says, oh, eating is rewarding. Um, but actually, what's going on under the hood here is just strong predictions bringing about behaviours. If you then look at the complicated cases like addiction, then I think you're going to have to think that there are kind of, there are sort of two sets of predictions in play. There's a prediction of something like hedonic consequences, mm. where the prediction might well be there's not really going to be any good hedonic consequences. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, I don't really, you know, it's not really that I predict consciously or unconsciously that I'm going to get great pleasure from alcohol or, mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, but there's also the prediction of what you're going to do. And so um, if you have a strong prediction that you are going to seek out the drug, that you are going to seek out the alcohol, then even if you also predict simultaneously that it's not going to give you hedonic, um, you might say reward, it's not going to give you hedonic kick, um, then I think then you get the right sort of that's how predictive processing accounts strike the sort of balance that people like Berridge have been saying that we really, really do need to strike so that you, you don't think that you're driven by reward in those cases. You're driven by something slightly different, and that mm-hmm. different thing is literally an expectation of your own behavior. Um, and I think it's, it's quite interesting to start to think about cases of addiction under this sort of banner of strong expectations about your own future behaviors. Mm. Um, it's sort of, I feel like it's sort of part of giving us a sense that actually, you know, there are ways there are ways around this, but basically you have to sort of often take a kind of indirect approach. You know, expectations are structured by environments. Often if you change the environment enough, that's going to make a big difference. Um, at the same time, yeah, I mean, I don't, yeah, I could get lost in the, uh, I could get lost in the shuffle there a bit, but um, the basic idea is that to deal with addiction, you need to separate out expectations about pleasure and expectations about what you're actually going to do and mm. what's happened in cases of addiction. You've got really, really strong expectations about what you're going to do. Mm. Um, in this way, then, it would be some element of... I guess you would see then that salience and reward prediction error are, 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 are similar, no? So, yes, it, I forgot it was salience. So you started off asking. No, that's that. okay. That's okay. That's right. Um, so, the right thing to say, I think, is that um, like dopamine, for example, in these pictures encodes precision, not reward. Mm. Um, it turns out that under many circumstances, that's going to look like reward, as we mm. were saying mm-hmm, earlier. Mm-hmm. But it's actually, um, it encodes the precision of a prediction so that um, if you are successful in your predictions, precision goes up. That's a sort of, um, that's a kind of dopaminergic um, boost situation. Um, salience is typically used here, although it's a, it, so Priston and Parr are using salience as a technical term in some of their work. Yeah. But, the way that I'm using salience and the way that a lot of predictive processing people use salience is, I think, a little bit looser than that. And it's uh, it's an attribute of what's important, though, it does sort of overlap, is it's an attribute of actions. Mm. And so um, if something is salient, then in essence what that means is that I'm assigning high precision to actions that would engage me with that. Mm. And so... 
that's a little bit different to just the idea of, um, if you like, assigning precision as I'm generating a percept of the world. That's more passive, that's not got action into the equation. So the difference really there is that salience, salience is kind of high precision, engaging action, mm. as opposed to just merely attending passively. Yeah, so there's so there's an active principle here. Yeah, exactly. that there's a, there's yeah. some active component to it, yeah. almost as if there is. It's not that you're going to get this kind of. I think there's a colloquial thing now that people say is, well, you get a a, a a dopamine rush or a dopamine reward yeah, for right. someone that's maybe uh, an addict. It, it wouldn't be necessarily a, a, trying to predict whether you have a reward or not. It's more of this is a, a salient or this is a, a, a top of the list urgent thing I need to figure out whether I get the a reward from it or not is almost irrelevant in that exactly. situation. Yeah, it, it becomes more like you're just sort of sucked in there because of the strong prediction that, yeah. you know, in that circumstance, this is what you're going to do. So, you know, um, put all the right paraphernalia in front of me and I get sucked straight into that mm-hmm. um, prediction that, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take the drug now. Well, this I guess the 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 payoff here of, of the question is is that changes the kind of framework in which we we review uh, addiction or addicts because well it's just it's just reward it's just this reward system they're just trying to obtain this reward and if you're looking at it in a, a framework of but there's a, a salient aspect of this precision for these actions or behaviors. You can remove this sort of moral kind of like, well, it's a, I just had this craving and I need to fulfill yeah. this kind of thing and I get rewarded for it. No, if it's more of a salience thing, it almost strips it of that and has a neutralizing effect of it. No, would you, would you see it that way? Or, or Good, no? actually. So now I understand why you why you were mentioning the the sort of moral dimension there because I didn't quite get that before. Yeah, but yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I completely agree. This sort of you know, there, there's no there's no. Um, intimation here that somehow you know you're being strongly driven by this kind of reward and they are just being weak-willed because you know right, right. Um, you didn't have to be driven by that reward um, it's you know it's it, it's a much more fundamental issue than that it's much more like I mean I think it's actually not an accident that we talk about bad habits <laughs> you know it's much closer to just understanding habit systems here like mm. super 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 strong and rather damaging habit systems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, no. That, that and of course, so, you know, if you ask what, how does habit get unpacked in predictive processing, it's typically unpacked by something being so overlearned mm. that um, that basically you only need to have just a, a little bit of a, sort of a little bit of experience of the right sort of situation, and everything else gets engaged. So a tiny mm. little prediction error signal suddenly will sort of get get rapidly quashed by action mm. and it's the action that um it's the action that you sort of feel that you in some sense can't help but perform in that circumstance so just like all this overlearned stuff where you know um i don't know if i've got the plumber in and they say whatever you do don't flush the toilet after you use it you know the number of times that you're just going to flush that toilet <laughs> um, right 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 it's almost it's almost like a chain event of things yeah. it's almost like you're on autopilot because you've just yeah. done it a million times yeah that, but you're right that looks different if yeah. if if it's if it's something kind of like that that makes in terms of habits that makes um makes a lot of sense 
So I guess the one thing I'm interested in is is sort of about um, our our or kind of internal ways of understanding how we're responding uh, to the outside world or how things are going. So with the predictive processing model, you talk about the ideomotor theory um, and how predictive processing is is different than that theory. Um, so how, just kind of set us up for that, similarities or differences uh, with motor control and movement, and then we can talk about some of the yeah. internal physiological states. Yeah, that's good. Um, so... So what we're getting to here is the predictive process in account of action, mm. um, which we've sort of touched on a few times earlier, but we haven't really said much about how it works. So the, you know, the, the starting point here is the idea <clears throat> that you've got two different ways to get rid of prediction error. One way, the way that you get rid of prediction error in perception, is you try and find a better guess. So, you know, if I, uh, if I go into my office and I'm expecting to see my desk and actually someone's taken it away, I get uh, waves and waves of prediction error, gets a better guess. Oh, um, yes, they were going to varnish your desk <laughs> this morning or something. Um, but there's another way of getting rid of prediction error, which is to bring about the state that you were expecting. Mm. And so um, the kind of thought is that some prediction error signals ones particularly to do with the body, ones that are to do with uh, what's called proprioception, mm -hmm. which is yeah. the kind of body's, as you know, the body's own, uh, sorry, the brain's knowledge about the current state of the body, its orientation in space, the kind, of, um, the, the kind of tensions and flexes in the different muscles and so on. Um, so when we have proprioceptive prediction errors, the thought is that um, the brain gets rid of those by actually moving the body so as to bring those proprioceptive signals about. Mm -hmm. This turns out to be a rather elegant way of doing motor control because it avoids an awful lot of heavy-duty computations that are involved in other ways of doing motor control. Mm -hmm. um, that leads in to the idea motor story because it's very much a sort of version so you know it's not really different to idea motor i think it's it's a version mm. of the idea motor story but it's a sort of it's a kind of um well it's a slightly it's a pumped up version in that there's actually a mechanism here mm. so the original idea motor story due to people like um herman lotzi and william james was that it's the idea of the completed action that brings the action about. So mm. that's what we look. when you have a very strong idea of reaching out and picking up the Coke can, it's that very strong idea that makes it happen. Mm. And actually, I think that was hugely insightful. Um, I think it's phenomenologically actually quite accurate the more I think about it. It sort of, it, it kind of goes to a lot of work in sports science where it's having the idea of making the stroke properly that actually seems to be helpful in bringing about the right stroke. Mm -hmm. um, but what happens in predictive processing is it's not really just the idea of the, the, the sort of goal. It's the idea of the, the sort of the, the flow of sensations that you would experience if you were doing this. Mm. Um, if you were doing this, yeah. Mm. I was going to say if you were doing it right, but let's just say if you were doing it. <laughs> <Right. laughs> um, so, so it's different from classic idea motor theory only in that it's about a whole trajectory of motion with all the accompanying sort of proprioceptive signals. Mm. And um, that means that it's got a computational implementation and a plausible 
um, neurological one as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just almost like um, I don't know about about yourself. I, I I play tennis, and so when I play tennis, this is very much this whole thing of I can't just. I mean, you have to think about hitting the ball and 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 timing and and how your swing is and follow through and your hips and your feet and there's all these things going on. It's, it's not it's not easy for sure. <laughs> it's yeah. very complicated. But yeah. it's not just thinking about the goal of what you want to do, right? Yeah. It's it, and it's not just visualizing it. There's that piece of it too, but it's more of yeah, there is a kind of flow aspect of through the body of trying to implement or or create the action. And that's and I think the key thing there, what you're saying is, is that if it was simply only cognitive or we're thinking about or visualizing it um, only, we would probably have less mistakes or errors or as frequently, right? Because you could say, well, it's right there. I can see it in my head. Boom. But I think the the flow through the body and the the essential utility of the body being a component of doing an action of something that's been predicted is, I mean, you know, uh, supremely important, no? Yes, I think you're exactly right. I mean, this is why it's not a, you know, this is not a sort of a, a kind of facile nod to sort of positive thinking or something. It's not just, you know, just imagine hitting that serve <laughs> properly and you're just going to do it. Um, instead, what you have to do is you have to, your brain has to know in in real detail what it feels like to be hitting that serve properly, where that feeling mm-hmm. is that that whole flow of proprioceptive information mm-hmm. and visual information and mm-hmm. all the, you know, little bits of cognitive, more cognitive information. If it's a windy day, you need to be somehow factoring the wind in, all that sort of stuff. Um, so expertise here really consists in, in learning how it feels, mm-hmm. I think, and then predicting how it feels brings a successful thing into being. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the, the expert tennis player or the expert driver can in a certain sense kind of see what to do and then just do it. Mm-hmm. But that's the product of all this learning that has instilled all of these expectations at multiple levels, which are right. kind of, they're basically predictions of how how your body, how the sort of flow of sensation through your body is going to be if this is what you're doing right now. Mm-hmm. And because you're not doing this right now, you get rid of the prediction errors that result by very systematically doing that and bringing that flow of sensation about. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, action is this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm. Um, mm. And uh, experts are just really good at making detailed prophecies that can then bring the right things about. Mm. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's definitely true. I mean, if anyone's seen Roger Federer on a tennis court, I mean, it just feels, you know, it's yeah. just so easy. But I mean, it's he's making it look effortless. <laughs> yeah. um, I guess uh, maybe a footnote here. I mean, I know you you you're more in you in the philosophy aspect of things. Um, you know, Merleau Ponty was was tremendous for. I mean, I think he's he's very prescient in many ways. I think he's super underrated. But, you know, his whole thing was about, you know, he talked a lot about perception. I mean, I think phenomenology of perception is is one of the, the most underrated but really important works of philosophy in the 20th century. It's a fantastic book. Um, and but he his big emphasis for the, you know, phenomenological umbrella he was a part of was how the experience the, the, that we have of the world is where it's not just, you know, subject-object but what's the backdrop of subject object and then that 
uh, space in which we're inhabiting. But his whole piece was exactly kind of the point that we're making here is you can't only have cognition or instinct or intuition or consciousness even without the body necessarily. The body is a useful medium. Of course, you can't just have the body without those other things as well necessarily. But And so how much, I guess, do you, I don't know how much you, you've read of him or whatever, but how much do you see philosophically, you know, some of his work on using the body or, how, or the, the, the importance of the body as having our experiences through the body and what gives the kind of unique, you know, thumbprint, if you will, of each person as being super essential in that way. Yes. I mean, I'm, I'm not a, a Merleau-Ponty expert, but the stuff that I've read, I find, as you say, very prescient, very, you know, beautifully pitched, uh, you know, with real interests in, in kind of the neuroscience of the day and the psychology of the, of the day. Um, the, the sort of the general picture of perception and action as being constantly locked together is is where I think the Merleau-Ponty picture and the predictive processing picture are really the same picture. Mm -hmm. um, it's that idea that you really shouldn't think of perception as something separate from action. Yeah, you know, I think that's that's the mistake. What we need to do is think of a, a, a kind of single thing that the brain is doing, which is in an embodied system, trying to minimize prediction error signals as we go about our tasks. Mm. And those prediction error signals form a kind of common currency that gets to drive both perception and action. Mm. Um, and indeed, you know, I, I've sometimes wondered whether we should really be... So, you know, the way that I set up the perception-action difference is, okay, in perception you get a better guess, in action you bring the world into line with the guess that you've mm. got. Mm. But, of course, actually in practice, the, the, the distinction there is never so hard and fast as that. You know, as I'm perceiving the world, I'm constantly acting in it, and as I act in the world, I change the, the stuff that is served up to perception. Mm. And taking all of that into account just reveals these two things as constantly locked together if they are indeed two things mm -hmm. you know it might be mm -hmm. that ultimately we'll just stop thinking of perception and action as really different and just think okay we're just self-organizing around prediction error i think that's the more fundamental notion we're embodied systems that self-organize around prediction error and along the way we spin off kind of um um, percepts of the world and actions in the world but even that distinction between the percept and the action I think it might be a bit of a sort of high level thing that we just kind of impose when we think about our own experience rather than anything that is fundamentally phenomenologically sort of deep so mm -hmm. maybe mm -hmm. there could be a sort of phenomenological investigation there that tries to dig a little bit beneath the the perception-action distinction itself. And I think that's something that um, Merleau-Ponty would have probably been pretty sympathetic to. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think that there's this integrative piece of action yeah. and perception where there's a almost a coalescing unitary you know, swoop, if you will, that, that's happening. And so it isn't so uh, segregated in some ways. And so, yeah. And constantly, and, you know, one of the things that our predictions are enabling us to do is to constantly sample the world, if you like, in ways that mm. test the predictions. Mm. And so, mm. you know, I when, when I just, I think visual saccades are a very good example of this, you know, as we sort of, as a, as a sort of high resolution phobia moves around the scene, we're kind of gathering bits of information, which... Um, 
are driven by our expectations of what kind of scene it is, but they're also testing those expectations, and it's all kind of unfolding in an action loop. Mm, so yeah. you know that's that's what we do. That's mm-hmm. you know I think that's how we engage our worlds. And salience is is then sort of if you like the salient aspects of the scene are the ones that you're going to visit. Mm-hmm. And I think the 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 evolutionary model of that is that one of the things that at least from other primates makes us distinctive is that ability to to have these models of the world and to predict them whereas you know obviously other other primates are are intelligent but they their brains are are not working as a kind of a as robustly in those types of ways to to do that kind of abstraction and or that kind of um there, we see elements of that you know and how certain primates use tools and things like that but and how we're able to to go much further in, in that component, you know, I think is is a little bit what sets us apart from, from from other animals. Yeah, I mean, that question is, you know, it's actually a very good question for predictive processing, what sets us apart, because, yeah. you know, the basic predictive processing um, architecture is right there in, mm. you know, in, in, in mammals all the way down. It's uh, something like it is there in birds, something um, not not a hundred percent unlike it in bees and insects so you know if you ask what sets us apart then i think the only thing that we can really say is well it's um it's stuff that lies on a, a continuum with all these other things and it's a sort of mosaic of abilities which have sort of i mean a big question for me is where you fit language into these into these right. puzzles so you know obviously predictive processing has a lot to say about how we deal with language because you know you predict next words in sentences you predict words from letters and letters from words all that sort of stuff mm-hmm. um, but it doesn't really have much to say about the power of language if you like you know my my long term conviction has been that language has been hugely transformative for human thought and yeah. reason it's not like it's not like higher cognition or cognition of our kind, I don't really like that term higher, but, you know, human, human, distinctively human cognition. I don't think that um, distinctively human cognition came first and language second. Mm-hmm. I think it's um, much more a sort of delicate co-evolution there where language started to do all kinds of things to us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I mean, I, I recently talked to uh, uh, Adam Bully, who wrote a book with Suddendorf, who they 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 do this work on uh, foresight, you know, yeah. and and there's an element of very much in the future this long termism yeah. kind of thing of how we're yeah. able to do it. So you know, I, you have to imagine in terms of the the, the neuroscience of it, it, obviously predictive processing becomes very um, important here, but it's just more of the kind of very abstract aspect of space and time of how we're doing things. You know, the the easy example here is you know how am i able to predict certain things if i'm going to go somewhere and and i realize that it will be colder at night so i should bring a jacket to make sure that i'm able to you know predict how i'm going to keep a essential function of my uh, temperature which is super important so we start to see where uh, all of these you know uh, things kind of start to uh, line up with each other and say, oh, it's very fascinating to see how all the things connect. And and, and they also push uh, a big component of uh, language is is really important uh, from our evolutionary yeah, story. Yeah, I mean, actually, the, the, the large grant project that I'm currently working on is, is sort of um, how we possibly 
used the material world that we build to drive a deeper and deeper kind of temporal model mm. so that um, we begin to become able to do these sorts of uh, these oh, sorts wow. of things. So that, yeah. you That's know, right. I think it fits very well with predictive processing is the idea that by building complex, by building more complex worlds, we train more complex prediction systems mm -hmm. and in turn enable you to build even more complex worlds. Mm -hmm. um, and somewhere in that mix, language is doing something really interesting. And I still don't think anyone knows what it is. Yeah, this is, it's very complicated. You, uh, you mentioned the work of Lisa Feldman Barrett. I mean, she's oh, yeah. obviously uh, uh, fantastic. Uh, she's yeah. done a lot of great work. Uh, she's a great science communicator as well. And Fantastic, oh, wow. very, very good. One, yeah. yeah, I mean, she's she's yeah. she's one of the best. I mean, she's I, I I use her as a kind of model of like this. This is basically how to do it. <laughs> she's great. Her books are great. Um, she talks about you mentioned the book about this whole body budgeting of and the role of homeostasis, which is this kind of balance of sorts. Um, so how, how do you see this working for the body and, and, and what do you make of this allostasis kind of disorder, this locked in brain? You do talk about this in the book. Just chat about that a bit. Yeah, I mean, the, so, you know, the thing that I most strongly take away from um, Lisa Feldman Barrett's work is this idea that, um, that the, the predictions that are actually most important for, um, for understanding human experience are, are predictions about our own sort of upcoming energetic needs. So this idea of a body budget, as you say, a sort of energy budget in effect, a lot of it. Um, so, you know, she points out, I think, really, really powerfully that um, it's not just that we feel sort of hungry before we need to eat. But if you if you feel thirsty and you take a drink of water, your thirst feels quenched. But actually, the water's done you no good at all until, you know, maybe 20 or 30 minutes later. So <laughs> the, the experience of a quenched thirst is as sort of predictively constructed as the experience of thirst itself was in the first place. Mm. Um, this is all about allostasis, which is this notion of, if you like, taking actions that will preserve your bodily integrity, where those actions might vary according to context. So it's not mm. just... It's not just pure homeostasis dragging you back to a set point. Right. Instead, you're doing something a bit fancier than that. You're sort of you're able perhaps to adapt your set points according to your needs. If you're running a marathon, they're probably a bit different to if you're sitting watching the television, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so the idea that this is a sort of fundamental economy of prediction, I think, is really a powerful one. And that, um, and that what we think of as emotion is deeply hooked up with bodily self-prediction mm. um, and that sounds sort of right to me i have that you know my we we touched earlier briefly on the dave Chalmers sort of um heavy duty notion of qualitative experience mm -hmm. but i think that the right place to start is actually with something more like basic sentience and i think that uh, the lisa feldman barrett work is really quite a good angle on basic sentience, you know, where mm. creatures, where creatures see the world in ways that are constantly inflected by their own bodily information and about predictions of their own bod bodily states, but also predictions of the world that factor in their bodily states. Mm. Um, that I think, I think at that point you're really in the ballpark of creatures for whom, you know, um, 
things matter in some sense because the way that you are perceiving and taking in the external world is constantly interacting with your own um, your own grip on the internal world, if you like. Mm-hmm. So you know the most obvious cases are things like um, if you show people uh, faces which would normally be perceived as neutral, but they think their heart is beating very fast at that moment, so you've maybe given them forced cardiac feedback, mm. um, they will tend to think of those faces as, as vaguely threatening, mm. or in other circumstances, maybe attractive. So, you know, it's, it's interesting. Bodily information is a rather blunt, rather blunt thing, and um, contextual information plays a big role too. Um, but there, I think, we're seeing the way that internal bodily information affects the way we perceive the world mm. and I think it's uh, it's all tied up with uh, expectations about what's going to be good or bad for us in some broad sense too do you where do you make the distinction then I guess of between this type of basic sentience and a type of qualitative consciousness right and and, and where does that sit within our world it's a huge can of worms it's a huge can of, <laughs> it's a huge can of worms that I reduced to an interlude in the book because mm-hmm. it's such a big can of worms. Yeah, it is. That, um, <laughs> when I actually did try to tackle it in a chapter or two, even I thought they barely made sense. Mm-hmm. So um, we ended up with an interlude where the interlude roughly says what you're getting from the predictive processing story here is a pretty nice account of what I'm going to call basic sentience. Mm-hmm. Basic sentience being the idea that... Um, you perceive the world by guessing at it. Those guesses are not just about the world, but they're about how doing things in the world will affect your own bodily states, particularly the ones important to survival for a creature like you. And at that point, you've got a creature that moves around in the world in a way that looks from the outside as if some things matter to it more than others. It's moving around, um, harvesting the kind of... Um, sensory experiences that enable it to carry on and persist in its world. Um, That's kind of sentience as I see it. So it's, um, you know, if you've just had a good meal, um, bits of the world won't appear as salient as they would otherwise. So, you know, the thing that might have looked like, I've got to go over there and eat that, doesn't look like that now, so I might go over here and do a bit of exploration instead to improve my model so I find more food tomorrow. that kind of thing. I think this is this is sentience. And then there's a question. Have you know? I have this picture of myself as a creature that has um, experiences. I depict myself to myself as um, experiencing the the distinctive and not altogether nice taste of diet coke and um, you know many other things. Um, and that's the sort of root of the of the charmer's style. Hard problem is so you know what's what's going on to give us these things. I mean, you know, predictive processing charmers will say will tell you a lot about how we move around in the world in ways that uh, fit the profile of sentience, as I just described it. Mm. But why does any of that feel like anything? And actually, deep down, I think we've already solved the problem when we did the work on sentience. So that's what I want to say is the only real problem of consciousness is the one that gets solved by understanding all that stuff about sentience, about Mm. how our behaviors are bodily inflected. We move around in kind of ways that are broadly speaking good for us. Um, 
So what's going on when we get really puzzled about qualia, um, which is just the philosopher's term for this, um, this stuff, the distinctive taste of the Coke, the um, mm -hmm. distinctive look of the sunset and so on. Mm -hmm. um, I think what's happening is that we've just become a bit too clever for our own good. We've sort of turned the prediction machinery on ourselves and on our co-specifics and we've had to come up with a very simple model to enable us to predict our own responses and those of others. And so in that model, I say things, you know, the model says things like um, you have experiences of um, certain kinds and they drive your actions in certain ways. You like sweet things. And so, you know, yeah. I, see you, you know, I see you moving towards uh, these things and therefore I say you like sweet things. Mm -hmm. um, so in that sense... My position here is a form of what some people call illusionism. Mm -hmm. I hate to use the word illusionism because I don't think that consciousness is unreal. Yeah. I just think that the, the basic phenomena here is not as difficult as it seems to be if where you start from is the way that phenomena looks. If you're a super advanced creature that is trying to have a picture of itself and its sort of interactions with the world, and has kind of come up with this simple picture of, you know, I've got tastes and sights and sounds and feels, and I use that to explain things to myself and others, but then I get very, very puzzled about how they fit in to the, to the real sort of physical picture, even though I know that I can explain how things move around in the world and respond in all the kind of right ways using that picture. So I guess I'm, I'm sort of sceptical about the residual puzzlement. So I think that um, once we understand basic sentience and we understand how some advanced creatures tangle themselves up a bit by using simplified self-models to predict their own and others' behaviour, and the models are great in themselves, it's just that they, yeah. they've spawned this metaphysical puzzlement. And it's a metaphysical puzzlement that I think is a kind of illusion. It's not consciousness mm -hmm. that's the illusion, it's the puzzlement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, anyway, well, I mean, there, I mean, there was a reason why I shrunk that to the interlude because yeah, you know, yeah. I'm only half convinced when I hear that. Yeah, yeah I mean, it is a, <laughs> it's a, it's, it's definitely <laughs> difficult. Uh, and uh, it's, it's, we're, we're, many people are, are, are trying to figure this out. You know, Dave Chalmers and Al Seth, you know, yeah. a lot of guys are, 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 and gals are working on, on consciousness and what it could be and what it is, what makes it distinct from other things. And so it's just, it's be interesting to see uh, where, where we end up with that. The, I mean, the other, the, the, the other little bit in there that goes with sentience is aerodynamics. And I uh -huh. should have thrown that into the mix at some point. Um, so, you know, if you're a, if you're a creature trying to minimize errors, prediction errors in your encounters with the world, one of the things that is that is going to be very beneficial will be for you to be able to find the bits of the world where it's going to do you the most good to try to minimize prediction errors. Mm. Um, and basically that means bits of the world where you can learn something, bits of mm. the world where, you're, where you kind of... Um, Bits of the world where your current understanding will enable you to make progress, but you're not quite there yet. That's the mm. ideal place to be, I think. Mm. And within predictive processing, there's a picture here of creatures that seek out good aerodynamics. And that means places where you're, where you're getting rid of more than expected amounts of prediction error. Mm. So basically, 
I expect to get rid, my brain expects to get rid of a, a lot of prediction error fairly easily when I walk around the world, move around. Every now and again, I find myself in a bit of a world where I can't really do much at all. Like, you know, maybe, I don't know, the first time you go diving or something like that, it's like, oh my God, um, I'm not, I'm not minimizing error very well down here. Mm -hmm. um, after enough experience, you sort of begin to be able to maybe one day, suddenly you think, I'm beginning to get the hang of this. You're mm -hmm. minimizing more than expected amounts of prediction error. And we love that bit of the world, mm -hmm. you know. If you just found yourself in that bit of the world, you'd stay there. Some of the developmentalists call this the Goldilocks zone. Mm -hmm. It's sort of problems that are challenging, but not too challenging. Right. Um, right. And that's where you can do the most learning. So now imagine you're a sentient creature driven by error dynamics. And now I think you're much closer to a picture of, um, a picture of us and why we are both exploratory and exploitative creatures. Um, you know, we, 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 we love good slopes for learning, if mm. you like. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, I think I think that's 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 definitely important to 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 note and to to try to you know be more uh, cognizant uh, uh, about um, the the last two uh, last two questions I have for you. Um, obviously, there's been you know, plenty of papers and books written on this, so you can just give us the the you know the the short condensed version of it uh, i think it's one of the last chapters in your book it's about the extended mind people have been thinking about this talking about this the, the mind isn't just the brain and in, in the in the head um how do you usually talk about the extended mind and and how is it uh, important for predictive processing yeah yeah i mean it's a big uh, to me it's a big part of what's um, what's going on in the book is is bringing the predictive process in picture together with the extended mind picture. Um, so, where shall I start? The extended mind is this sort of, <clears throat> well, there's a nice segue because we were talking about Dave Chalmers a minute ago. So back in the, the late 90s, Dave Chalmers and I wrote a paper called The Extended Mind. And the idea in that paper was that um, mind isn't all in the head. The idea was that sometimes there are goings on outside the head that have become so neatly dovetailed with what's going on inside the head that we should think of the, the sort of the cognitive apparatus, the cognitive machinery as a larger system, the kind of mm. hybrid system. Yeah. Uh, so a typical example now might be you and your smartphone, you know, you meaning bio you and your smartphone being the kind of cognitive whole of a sort so that you're, um, you like you rely as you go about your purposes on the functionalities that are provided by the smartphone in very much the same way as you rely on the functionalities provided by your biological brain mm. so you know there was that sort of picture the extended mind picture some people liked it some people didn't there was a lot of endless argument for many years about whether minds were really extended or not you know some people said no they're not really extended you know all the real cognizing goes on inside skin and skull this other stuff it's just you know tools and um, you know a bit like uh, a bit like using a spade to do some digging or something like that um, what I think the predictive processing story does is gives us a, a clear sense of of the commonality here and of the <clears throat> and of the mechanism that underlies it so the there's the puzzle for the extended mind, for me at least, 
was always how does the right stuff come together at the right time. Mm. So you know, if I'm if I'm confronting some problem domain, maybe I my brain does some stuff and I get the phone out my pocket and the phone does some stuff and I've got a notebook in front of me and I do some stuff using a notebook. Um, how does all that the right stuff come together at the right time? Mm. Predictive processing is a really has a really good account of that because what's going on as you go about your goals is that you're trying to minimize expect I'm going to use a nasty technical term just bear with me for a minute you're trying to minimize expected future prediction error mm. now it's a it's a horrible phrase and it almost sounds nonsensical why like, <laughs> what are these expected future errors if you expect them why you you know why don't you just avoid them um, and the idea is of course that you do avoid them that what you're doing is in the present you're kind of projecting into the future trying to achieve you know technically you're think you're imagining that your goals were realized and you're kind of asking yourself what's the trajectory of of uh, states that will make those goals be realized um, and to get rid of expected errors you bring about both practical actions, because we talked in the way that we talked about earlier, by moving your body in the right sorts of ways. Also, mental actions like um, doing a bit of mental imagery, retrieving stuff from bio memory. Also, physical actions revolving around that common currency of prediction error. And of course, at that point, once physical actions are in the mix, they can be used to minimize expected future error too. So that is just like um, if I look up the movie times or I look up the bus times. So, you know, I want to get to the movie house on time. In order to do that, I need to know the bus times. So maybe I get the phone out of my pocket and I, you know, I Google the bus times. So that whole, everything there is brought about in exactly the same way. It's all self-organizing around expected future prediction error. It's mm. trying to minimize this quantity of expected future prediction error mm. um, and that just brings the right batch of things together at the right time but it also shows and this is what's important for me I guess it also shows the extent to which the brain's take on its own capabilities is not making a distinction between those capabilities and those that are supported in the phone mm. it's basically it doesn't matter to the brain whether something is stored in bio memory or stored in the phone. Mm. Um, the, as long as there's a robust, reliable way of using that to get rid of expected future error, then mm. it's just going to do it. Um, and that, I think, gives the right sort of um, computational underpinnings to the extended mind story. It shows in exactly what sense the brain doesn't care whether it's using its own internal stuff or something outside is doing some of the work. Mm. Um, and it also, I think, sort of, it kind of shows how, shows how the right things come together at the right time. So mm. first, the brain doesn't care what it's using, but secondly, by estimating how best to minimise expected future error, if you're, you know, you're well-trained, just like all other forms of expertise, the right things come together at the right time. So it's, um, I don't feel like, okay, I feel like I haven't explained that as well as I wish I had, but the sort of general picture is that expected future prediction error gives you the kind of, 
currency that you need to drag the external world in in the right way at the right time. Mm. Um, and it only does that if, of course, you, you're already well enough practiced. So, you know, mm. this stuff has to be robust, reliable, in mm. some broad sense understood. But that doesn't mean that the brain's doing all the work. It just means that what the brain has learned to do is be a kind of conductor of this symphony, some of which is internal and mm. some of which is external. Mm. And I think it's that that's what I think was the sort of the real fundamental idea of the extended mind is that we shouldn't think of the brain as the thing that is doing all the work. It's more mm. of a kind of orchestrator. Mm. Yeah, no, that's, that's that's a nice way of, of putting it. That makes that way of explaining it makes makes a lot of sense because it, it it's saying that there's a role here, but it's not doing everything. Uh, it's not working in isolation or or in, you know in a vat somewhere. You know, it's 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 that it's 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 uh, exactly. it's in concert with other other aspects of our body and of our of of who we are. And even saying that it's an orchestrator might be kind of over egging the custard just a little bit. Maybe it's a bit more like a symphony conductor or so, you know something. Sure, where sure. Yeah. A lot of the work really is being done outside. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess last question here is just what are the ways in which for us as humans can 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 manage or if you will control if you will uh, whatever word you want to use there our our predictive brains uh with information we're getting outside of our brains and and in information we we have inside of our brains so how does all of this yeah. how does how does our predictions how does it all work together to mm -hmm. to try and make you know I'll say the best decisions but I guess you know decisions that that help us or, or push us in a good way yeah, I mean, one of the chapters towards the end of the book is called Hacking the Predictive Mind. And that's where I try to confront this question of, you know, what does all this mean for how we actually go about things in our daily lives? And what can we do actively to, um, to, to exploit this cognitive profile if this is indeed the one that we've got? Um, and I think there's a whole bunch of things, and as you might expect, some of them are kind of more inward-looking and some of them are more outward-looking. So, you know, you can hack the predictive brain by things like um, using placebos, for example. Even honest placebos seem to work. They bring about some good effects, probably because they recruit unconscious predictions of relief. At the same time, you want to be a bit careful of the predictions that you tee up in yourself, because if they're predictions of, um, of bad side effects from a, a thing that you're taking, like a statin or something, that could very well play a role in bringing about some of those effects. So we should need to be a little bit careful in that sort of way. Um, at the same time, practices like self-affirmation seem quite helpful. They can kind of help us predict a bit better, and our predictions do tend to be self-fulfilling prophecies to some extent. So self-affirmation is quite a powerful tool. Reframing is a very powerful tool. Um, you know, when I'm about to go on stage or do something that I find rather, um, rather threatening, then I get this little tingling feeling in my fingers just beforehand. And I've learned to reframe that as kind of chemical readiness to perform well. And I find that that's actually helpful, you know, mm -hmm. it just, you know, mm -hmm. instead of thinking, oh, this is a harbinger of doom, you know, um, something terrible is going to happen. Like, no, no, this is my body getting ready to do well. That's, mm -hmm. that's helpful. Um, there's a whole thing out there called pain reprocessing theory. 
which works very much like that. It's kind of getting people to think about their own chronic pain in, and disability in different ways that can turn out to be very helpful. Mm. Um, other ways that you can hack the predictive brain are, are by providing different environments like virtual reality, soothing virtual reality environments seem to entrain predictions of relief and sort of gentleness. So undulating jellyfish seem to be rather popular. <laughs> um, so, you know, um, another thing that you can do that is more dramatic, and I talk about it a bit in the book, is psychedelic, um, classic yeah. psychedelics, which mm-hmm. um, appear to be releasing some of your deepest self predictions. Mm. And so if you can take your foot off the pedal of self expectation a bit, that allows sort of new ways of seeing the world of seeing yourself of seeing your relation to the world to emerge. Mm. Robin Carhart Harris is is doing a a lot of work on Mm. bringing classic psychedelic research and predictive processing research together. so I think there's uh, meditation, to name just one more. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. Meditation is probably a, a systematic practice for gaining control over your own precision weighting mechanisms. Yeah. I think that's really what it looks like. It's Because yeah. um, if you had more control over precision weighting, then that's exactly what it would, what you need to let, to be able to systematically let go of the sort of um, the grip of your own kind of current concerns and, uh, mm. and ponderings about the future and so on. Mm. Um, and you can see how learning to really up the value of a little bit of current sensory information like the breath or something yeah. can train you in that way. Mm. So there's interesting work going on on meditation and predictive processing. Um, mm. So there are lots of things. I think what's interesting is that all of these sort of hacks we know, we already know about them. There's, yeah. you know, there's nothing new in that set, mm-hmm. but they all make a little bit more sense under the sort of um, single umbrella of the predictive brain in the embodied agent. Yeah, it feels like a, a more kind of, um, I don't want to say holistic picture, but it feels like it's kind of putting everything a little bit more together of, of yeah. where all these things kind of go instead of just kind of out on their own. That's exactly how I feel about it. There's a lot of things we've it's, um, we've known them for a long time, but they just fall into place a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the book is called The Experience Machine, How Our Minds Predict and Shape Reality. Um, where can people find the book and where can people uh, find you or, or contact you or get at you or what are the best ways? Um, yeah. Um, Penguin Random House website has stuff about the book. Actually, it's up there on Amazon now already, so you can see it mm-hmm. up there. Um, and, and as for me, uh, easiest way to get in contact with me actually is good old-fashioned email. So if you, um, if you Google Andy Clark Sussex, um, you will get me and drop me an email. I'd be very, very happy to chat about these things. Um, watch out for the other Andy Clark, a cryptographer. That's not me. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but there we go. Um, very funny. Yeah. Well, um, apart well, from that, yeah, you can find me on social media too. You know, I'm on Facebook um, and, uh, and uh, Twitter. But, okay. Uh, oh, on Twitter, yeah. Cogs, Cogs Andy is the Twitter handle. Um, well, I mean... I don't know what to say, Andy. This is, this is too much fun. I mean, I, I, I was really looking forward to the conversation and it didn't disappoint. I, I, I'm really grateful that you 
uh, gave me a couple hours to talk about your work, but uh, more importantly, all these things about our brains and our experience. And it was just so, uh, so enriching. And uh, I'm just uh, very, very grateful. So big thanks to you for doing that. It's been a huge pleasure. And, uh, and uh, I'll have to go away and think harder about reality soon. <laughs> never going to go away that long. <laughs> well, maybe maybe we have the next book for you to kind of tell us what you figured out. So, <laughs> all right. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Take care.